Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward, and my guest on this episode is Montana writer and Little Shell Chippewa, Chris Latre. Chris's first book, One Sentence Journal, published in 2018, won numerous accolades, including the Montana Book Award, as well as the High Plains Book Award. And his second book, Becoming Little Shell, is due out next year. He also has an outstanding blog, An Irritable Métis, where he discusses the intersection of humanity and the natural world around us. Chris was a professional musician for years in Seattle, where he aimed to be both a writer and a musician, but eventually got a day job, if you will, in manufacturing sales. Growing increasingly discontented with the corporate world, in 2014 he vowed to quit his job in three years and become a full-time writer, as he'd stayed active in the field writing pieces for magazines and journals here and there when he found the time. But midway through the plan, his father died and he decided to speed up the process, leaving his job in 2015 and embarking on a writing career that was a long time in the making and which promises to be a long and fruitful one. Much of Chris's writing is informed by his tribal affiliation with the Little Shell. Long called the Landless Indians of Montana, the tribe lost federal recognition in the 1800s and regained it in 2019. I'll let him tell you more of the details about it and the impacts federal recognition has had on the tribe, but his worldview is deeply embedded within an indigenous perspective. Over an hour or so, we talked via Zoom about his tribe's history and its future, plus his view as both a writer and an activist. We start with a quick discussion about his background and how he had the strength to make such a huge professional change in an effort to fully live his life. Okay, uh, so for people who may not know your background, can you tell me just a little bit about how you went from musician, manufacturing, sales job, acclaimed writer? Like, what was that uh, process? Yeah, well, you know, like everybody else or, or, or many other people, you know, when I was in high school, my dream was to be a rock star, you know, and I was... 10 years old, I started listening to Kiss, you know, in 1977. And, and, you know, I listened to all kinds of hard rock. And when I was a junior in high school, my, my friends and I started a rock band. And when we all got out of high school, we moved to Seattle in the late 80s. And we're there like during the whole big Seattle thing. And, um, you know, my plan then was that I was going to be a, a rock star and then like write books on the tour bus and, and, <laughs> You know, so so creative stuff was always what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I never went to, you know, I went to college at University of Montana for like one semester and and skipped all my classes and played soccer all day, intramural soccer with a bunch of hippies, you know, and it was it was fun. But, you know, I wasn't committed. I, I mean, I was just waiting for my buddy to get out of high school. Mm-hmm. And then through that course, you know, taking various jobs, I always kind of worked my way up the ladder, you know. So, like, we started working at this manufacturing place just – stacking boxes at the end of the production line. And, you know, 10 years later, I was the, in charge of purchasing for the entire place, you know, and that kind of translated to when I moved back to Montana, about the time you were there in 97, I was up north in Ronan working for a company. And that led directly to the, the manufacturing consulting gig I had for a company out of Ohio. And I did that for like 13 years. And by the end of that, I was just, I'd reached the point, you know, my dad, passed away you know he worked 43 years at his job and, and just kind of worked there long enough to get sick enough to where he had no life once he retired okay um and i just didn't want to take that path and and so i just kind of made a plan for an exit strategy for getting out of that and devoting my time to writing and that was end of 2015 and you know i was already doing some freelance stuff magazine work and and writing 
you know, reviews and profiles and a couple feature pieces for the local alt weekly called the Missoula independent, which no longer exists. So I was already doing it. And then, you know, once I left my job, that's, that's really what I wanted to do. And, and here we are. Yeah. How did you make that leap? Um, you know, cause I know I have a couple friends, you know, our age, you know, um, who are, who are in varying states of misery about where their life is and how they haven't changed it yet. And, you know, some are making some efforts and some are still just kind of wallowing around uh, because it's, you know, it's a difficult tether to, to, to cut. And I don't know if you have to actually cut it completely or, or if you don't, but like where, um, you know, just how did you, how, how did you overcome that fear? You know, I, I, you decide what's important to you, I think. You know, I mean, I took a huge pay cut when I left that job. And I basically, I didn't have a lot of debt to begin with. So whatever money I was able to cash out of that job, I just paid off all my debts. Okay. And recognized that there were certain things that, you know, I just wouldn't be able to do. You know, I don't, you have to decide, you know, because you make more money by needing less. Okay. And, and that was kind of the philosophy that I went with, knowing that I wasn't going to need, you know, there are things I wouldn't be able to do initially, but that if I played my cards right, some of those things would come back to me. So, you know, I don't have a big house. I don't have fancy cars. I don't have, you know, a, a sense of entitlement that I should be able to travel all over the place and take these vacations. So you start measuring those things, how you spend your life and decide what am I willing to give up in order to pursue this other thing? And that's what I, that's what I did. You know, I'm, I'm as happy, especially now, you know, there, there are places I can drive, you know, within eight hours that, that kind of gets my travel itch scratched, you know, in this, in this um, kind of radius from where I am in Missoula, Uh, you know, certainly there are, times and I want to do more, but, you know, I dedicated myself to my writing and that is starting to pay off a little bit. So I can look to a future. Well, maybe I can do a couple of these things once or twice that I didn't think I'd ever be able to do again. You know, it's just, it's, I just kind of rolled the dice, you know, and it, I on the prize, you know? Yeah. That's interesting. I just don't know why everybody must have a different um, spot they hit where they decide to to throw the dice and not just keep, keep blowing on them for good luck, you know, like something, a switch that different people hit at different times. Sure. I mean, I think there are people who want to, but they get saddled with, with like debt mm-hmm. and, and not necessarily even bad debt, but just think of the line we're sold about like getting an education. And right. next thing you know, you're 80 grand in, in debt. And, right. and, you know, you hear these people like, yeah, I took out 30 grand in, in student loan debt. 15 years ago and I've paid 60 and I still owe 40. You know what the fuck? Right. Right. Working at Chili's. Talk about a bait and switch, man. Yeah. Right. Because that, that doesn't guarantee you an income to begin with, you know, with your undergraduate degree in literature or whatnot, or, you know, psychology, sociology. Yeah. I, I, I would be hard pressed to really tell anybody that they have to go to college. Like that is the number one way. I'm sure it works for somebody and it worked for me, but I still have debt that I'm still paying right now, you know, student loan debt. So I, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I would never tell somebody that's the only way to go about it. You know, for sure. I grew up in a very anti uh, educational environment, I guess I would say, you know, cause they would, he would, you know, he worked out at the mill and you know, these, these, 
chemists or whatever who would come in. Just he was always complaining about these college guys, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I never had any pressure on. He wanted me to go in the service because that's what he did. Okay, you know, he went in the navy when he was seventeen years old, and he always thought that that's what I should do too. You know, I think now if 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 he saw what I was doing, he'd he'd be pleased with it. You know, I think mm-hmm. he would find some 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 pride in that. I mean, a lot of what a lot of like the essays and things that are in one sentence journal were originally like blog posts and he would read those and it was kind of my way to communicate my life to him while he was still alive because because he would get a kick out of him, you know. He still informs a lot of what I do, but now it's more a matter of me telling this story that either he didn't know or, you know, as far as my little shell stuff, whether he didn't know the story or just chose not to talk about it because he would not talk about it. Yeah, man, there are all these stories that were suppressed for a reason because, you know, as recently as my dad's parents, you could get your ass kicked out of the United States for being who we were. You know, Métis people, Canadian Indians, refugees, whatever you want to call it. And that's total bullshit. So there was a whole multiple generations who just did not talk about it. And I'm trying to tell those people's stories. So that's how my dad is with me. Yeah, Mm self-preservation. Thank you. That's a great uh, accidental segue into uh, the next question I have on my list here is to could you just tell us a little bit about your tribe? Because all these groups have unique histories. Uh, You know, we get kind of this... Americanized, westernized version of Indians being this homogenous group, woo, 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 you know, throwing a spear and shit. But your particular tribe really does have a unique history. So if you could maybe just kind of walk us through that real quick or slow, however you want to do it. Yeah. So, so I'm enrolled with the Little Shell tribe of Chippewa Indians, which is based in Great Falls, Montana. And we went, depending on what date you start with, we went unrecognized. We were disenrolled by the federal government around like there was a uh, an agreement it wasn't a treaty called the mccumber commission in 1891 which we call the 10 cent treaty okay. where this where the feds came out and they tried to buy a bunch of land at, at 10 cents an acre and our chief little shell for whom our tribe is named wouldn't sign it so mccumber got a group of plains chippewa which is what we're often referred to as who were just dudes he could talk into putting their mark on this piece of paper and the 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 agreement went down and we were disenrolled Hmm. i date us back to 1863 which is when another chief little shell which was kind of a hereditary title decided i'm not going to sign anything with with the government again because every time we do it's they don't hold up their end of the bargain okay but we got our federal recognition in in 2019 um but you know my tribal ID says that I am Chippewa Cree, which is, you know, some tribal affiliations under like the umbrella of the Anishinaabe, which is a number of different tribes all consolidated under one kind of umbrella. And the Chippewa Cree are, are two of them. Okay. But I identify as Métis, which most of our, my little shell brothers and sisters uh, identify as. And what that is, is the cultural designation that exists in Canada, but is not recognized in the United States. And, and it, it's a mixed race culture, but totally unique. It's a post-colonial culture that arised when, you know, the Europeans, primarily French, with like some English and Welsh people as well, started marrying into these indigenous tribes, going back to the 
late 1600s, early 1700s, and created this this unique culture that was a mix of 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 everything happening there. Um, and that's part of what got us disenrolled. Is the United States said, "Well, you guys aren't even Americans," and it's like, "Well, I you know I used the standard, you know, we didn't cross the border; the border crossed us. We were existing in these in these regions." split by the medicine line in the Canadian U S border long before either the Canadians or the Americans existed. So if I trace it back to the Chippewa side of my heritage, you know, we've been here a long, long, longer than historians will credit us for though tribal mouth to mouth, you know, history passed down and, and some ancient birch bark scrolls and stuff indicated we've been here far longer than, than what colonial historians would, would argue that we have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of it, you know, we're tied to the tribes that originally w- were centered around the great lakes, you know, the Ojibwe people, Ojibwe Chippewa essentially being an interchangeable tribal name. And we moved out West and we were a Buffalo hunting culture even as late as, as into the 1870s and 1880s, 1880s, as the buffalo herds kind of disappeared, we were among the last ones that were hunting buffalo and trading buffalo robes. And then when that went away, you know, it was the bones that we were gathering up and, and using those as trade items. So the buffalo has been part of our culture for a long time. That's the designation I like to make about all those about the tribes that remained in the Great Lakes versus us who came out and yeah, yeah. And, and, and did the bloody work of, of hunting buffalo. <laughs> you mentioned the medicine line. Um, I don't know if a lot of people that um, would listen to this know why it's called that. Like, what can what's that about? Can you explain that real quick? It's kind of fun. Well, I think be, I, I like the idea. If, if, yeah, it used to be if try if Indians were being chased by the U.S. cavalry, they would stop at the was it the 49th parallel and, yep. and, and, uh, and it was, you know, medicine being kind of a interchangeable word for magic it, it, at its most simplest, they would stop because they wouldn't go into Canada because they, it was illegal for them to go into Canada. So the tribe started calling it the medicine line because as, as if by magic, you know, I mean, that's a pretty simplistic way to put it, but, yeah. but that's essentially why it was called the medicine line. And it worked the other way too, right? Canadian uh, Mounties or whatnot wouldn't go into the U S right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure there was some wiggle room there, but for the most part, you know, it depends on who's watching and how close they are and where, but right. yeah, for sure. Why do you think the Métis are not recognized in the U.S., but they were in Canada or are in Canada? Well, it took some work in, on the Canadian side for them to to get their designation as a as a distinct nation as well. And I don't know that history as well as I as I should, and I think that's probably the next phase of my personal education, but I just don't think there is a strong enough Métis community on the American side. I mean, there are a lot of us, yeah. but we're not organized in the same way as they are in Canada, you know, and, and, and that's in my, the book that I'm working on that, that will be out hopefully next year um, talks about, it's a history that nobody knows about um, to the extent where, you know, We've we've largely been erased from from Montana history, except for you know that tiny percentage of people who care about that stuff. But we've been here with every important thing that has happened in in this region, and nobody knows, you know. And and that's something that I would like to see changed. I mean, settlements literally people driven from them, and and homes either burned or taken over by these brave white homesteaders. Right. You know, that's a that's one of those. I hate to use the word 
myth, because I think myth is a more important word than, than trying to put a negative spin on it. But, you know, the myth of the West is, is so tied to these brave colonial homesteaders who in a lot of cases, you know, we'd build a cabin to winter in, we'd go hunt Buffalo, maybe be out there for more than a year and come back to our cabin. Well, after a certain amount of time, you know, imagine if you went on vacation and came back, you know, two months later or whatever, and somebody else is living in your house. That's right. the kind of shit that happened all the time. Right. You know, and, and then we were eventually just lost everything. Yeah. Back to your tribe, uh, 2019, uh, it was part of the spending bill, defense spending bill. Yeah. It was a rider. Yeah. So we had tried like, like in 2018, we came within one vote of getting federal recognition then. And it was, it was a Senator from Utah, Mike Lee, Mm -hmm. who, who the last day of the session was basically, you know, thumbing down every piece of legislation he could. And there, you know, there's a story about how that all went down and just the bullshit political games that he was playing. And there was a sense of inevitability about our federal recognition going to happen. And it was just because of all these, assholes that would stand in the way and and we finally realized you know what rather than go through all these hoops again and get stymied by one shithead mm-hmm. we're just going to cre- create a writer and a try and attach it to a bill that must pass yeah and that's what the what this one was it's the bill that that funds the entire military which and, is ironic right <laughs> what's that which is ironic right it is it's you know that's I wrote about that, how ironic it was that we finally got our federal recognition as a bill attached to a writer for a military that has only ever tried to eradicate us, signed into law by the biggest fuckhead colonialist asshole ever, Trump. I mean, the irony there is is just like mind blowing, but we'll take it. Sure. You know, the, the, the thing that bummed me out is that worrying about how many of our members like, Oh, Trump, you know, he, he, he's the good guy who finally made it happen for us. He had nothing to do with it. He doesn't know who we are. You know, we were just lucky that we had people in DC busting their asses to get enough people to understand our situation and look at the fact that we generate thousands and thousands and thousands, like 80,000 pages of documents to prove who we are and where we came from that that it was like, it's a no brainer, you know? Yeah, I, I imagine it's inevitable. Some people will attribute it to Trump because it happened on his watch, you know. But if right. you just take ten seconds to look at Trump's policy on things like the Bears ears or whatever, it becomes sure. pretty clear where his yeah. his allegiances are, and they're not with Native peoples. I would I wouldn't think so. I understand yeah. that concern, uh, and also didn't it have something with the the wall, like the wall down in Mexico. Was that part of that same bill? The part of the bill, part yeah, of yeah, part of the bill. Another irony. Yeah, included the the border wall there. (laughs) So what does it mean now for your tribe in this context that you have federal recognition for, you know, what does that actually like in terms of practical terms, what does that mean? So for practical terms, it gives us access to programs and, and, and resources that we would not have as a federally recognized tribe. So like healthcare and housing things and stuff like that. You know, the problem is, is that most of that work is, is done through the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And for the health, health care stuff, it's 
it's IHS, which is Indian Health Services, which is over underfunded. I mean, both of those organizations are also shit shows and they have, you know, the way they handle, you know, they have a certain number of agents who have to cover just these vast swaths of, of landscape out West. Yeah. You know, like, I think there's like eight regions for the BIA and maybe 10 for IH. It's those numbers aren't, they might be right, but, but, uh, but, but it's, it's a, it's the whole country is divided into, into a very small number of, of regions with people having to, to, to manage them, you know, from the federal level. So, so whatever it means to be federally recognized, what we will get as, you know, financially to operate as a tribal government, all those things is still moving at glacial pace. With your discussion just a second ago about like the BIA and uh, the IHS, those are often, those are I think essentially controlled by Congress, right? Let's, let's talk about this idea of sovereignty for a minute. So in, in your uh, article for my relations, you say, but quote, we are but a sovereign, we, but we are a sovereign nation who are now in a position to deal in strength with another nation who surrounds us on all sides. A nation we must never forget rarely has our best interests in mind, end quote. And when I've heard Indian sovereignty in the in the past, I've I've often looked askance at that notion since the federal government has taken and basically controlled, you know, so much Indian land, uh, the domestic dependent nations, as Justice Marshall, you know, said years and years ago. And then there's that great piece in the Atlantic uh, that came out in May, David Trower, Troyer, yeah, David about Troyer. giving, yeah, you know, returning national parks to the tribes um, and you talk about it too in the flex of sovereignty. So what does, um, what is sovereign, what does it mean to be sovereign? Like in your vision or your worldview and what is the role of land? I know I'm taking probably a too narrow of a focus, um, but even you said in an interview with Emily, uh, Emily Riddle has written that being sovereign doesn't mean we're going to take our land back and no one else can come on it. So, you know, what does it mean for you that you're, you know, to actually have sovereignty and does it truly exist in, in your tribe? Well, in my tribe, it really doesn't because we really don't have a land base yet. I mean, we're we're working towards that. Um, so, like you see sovereignty, like in South Dakota during COVID, when when some of the tribes there tried to block the highway and did block the highway and say, "You can't come on our land because we are trying to protect our members," and that that freak show governor Christy Noem or Noem or however you say her name you know, went to Trump to try and get them to overturn this. And and that to me is what sovereignty looks like. It's like, this is our land and we can control who can be here or not when we want to. And I know, you know, the Blackfeet did it. They exerted their sovereignty by closing access to the Eastern side of Glacier Park. And I think there would have been a much more of an uproar federally if they would have if they had the ability to close access on the west side also because you know yeah they closed it on the east side but people could still get to glacier and it was a nightmare on the west side um and covid spiked as a result of that you know in those counties on the you know going in from west glacier another example would be the confederated salish and kootenai tribes which they exist if you're coming up like from missoula and you're going to glacier park you go right through the heart of the cskt reservation and I talked to their tribal chairwoman uh, in, in early July last year and asked if she wanted to try and close the access through Highway 93. And she wanted to, but but she wasn't allowed to. Um, 
because there's just too much tourist dollars there. But to me, that's what sovereignty really looks like is, is we are going to, we don't want you people from, from other parts of the country to come here and make our people sick, which is what happened. As soon as tourism opened up in those places, that's when COVID really started to spike, you know, and they have recreational areas like on reservoirs and lakes and stuff on the reservation that, they were overrun with people who were hiding out from COVID from other places. And what the tribe ultimately did is they were able to close access to those places. And if they put checkpoints in, and if you tried to get there and you didn't have a tribal ID, you weren't allowed to go. I mean, I couldn't even go with my little shell tribal ID because I wasn't, you know, with the CSKT. Mm-hmm. So that that's like on the ground, like today type sovereignty that I think tribes deserve. And, and that I think the federal government is, is, just the same old story of not holding up their end of the bargain when they don't allow it to happen. But then it comes to like membership and this whole idea, you know, I've mentioned blood quantum already. And what blood quantum is, is, you know, what percentage of Indian blood you have of a certain type that you have that enables you to be enrolled with a specific type tribe. And that's colonial bullshit too, because it's not even real. There's no, there's no blood of Cree or Chippewa that makes me any different than you. Right. You know, there's, there's DNA and all that stuff, but even that's horse shit. And my idea of tribal sovereignty is that if we are sovereign nations, which we are, then I feel like tribes need to come up with a means to expand their roles or welcome members into their tribe with a naturalization process, just like any other sovereign nation does. You know, if you live in Serbia and you want to come to the United States and you've, your family's lived there for generations, you can become an American by a specific process of learning our history, you know, whatever steps you have to take to pass that test to become an American citizen, you should be able to do that to become a little shell citizen too. And it would be up to us to determine what that is because that's how we always did it. You know, my wife should be able to become enrolled with a little shell if she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it should be, you know, if, if she marries into our tribe, it should be an option that she doesn't even have to pass a test right. just through marriage. She should, you know, all those things. And I'm just kind of throwing stuff out there. No, it's great. It's great. And, and, but to me, that is sovereignty. If we want to see, view ourselves as sovereign nations, we need to shit can all that bullshit blood quantum stuff that was handed to us by the people who tried to eradicate us in the first place. Right. Say, fuck all that. This is how we're going to do it. Right. And the federal and, government decided to, this is the one that said, you got to come up with the whole idea of blood quantum to begin with, right? Well, they came up with it and they gave us, you guys need to have tribal constitutions and here's a template you can use. Yeah. And most tribes did that. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm talking in very simplistic terms and there are people who are better educated in this that can say, well, actually this tribe said, like, yeah, I know not everybody's the same, but the vast majority of us, that's what we did. Yeah. And that's, it goes to, I think, most race um, discussions of race is, you know, as a, as a sociologist, you know, of course, we study it as a social construction, that it's all really created the labels we use. Individual humans vary from one person to another, but these labels and these terms are all essentially shit. And even the biological community is, is scientific community is on board with that. You know, in the old days, it might have just been the social scientists, but you yeah. know, the biological scientists now are like, no, man, we're all we're just all mutts. You know, we're all fucking right. 
inbred. And so, you know, these categories are completely arbitrary and they're based on things that just kind of jump out at us. And we say, oh, there must be our lines there, you know, but it's, it's, it doesn't just apply. I think all of our discussions about race and, you know, Indians just have it so much more specific with this blood quantum shit, but it really is just a whole made up process. Well, and, and, and it's changing. So, so like, like I talk about the CSKT, you know, they originally to determine what percentage of Indian blood, it didn't have to be just like say Salish. So prior to, I think it was in the sixties prior, I mean, say 1965, um, you could be like, have a, 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 a Salish mother and a Blackfeet father and, prior to whatever it was in the sixties, you were considered full blood Indian for the determination of your blood quantum. Well, then they decided in the sixties sometimes that we're going to change that. And we're only going to allow Salish or, or, or Kootenai or Kalispell blood to determine whether you can be CSKT. And if you're Blackfeet, that part of your heritage doesn't have any part in determining what your blood quantum is. So all these people who were originally that came after that date who are, would have originally been considered full blood are now half. Yeah. And that split families because you could have a sibling born on one side of that date who was considered full. And then the sibling born after that cutoff now all of a sudden is half. Yeah. And you know, you get deeper into those percentages and you've got one sibling who was maybe a quarter and meets the blood quantum category to be CSKT. And then the date happens and then the next sibling is born and now is only an eighth and now they can't even be enrolled. And they're the exact, yeah, you know, right. genetically the exact same person. Yeah. And, and I, I'm just using the CSK. I'm not picking on them. Oh, Lots no, of no. tribes have done that. Yeah. That's and, fascinating. Oh, and then like, like Red Lake, the Red Lake Ojibwe at one, a couple of years ago, like reset their percentages. So like, if I can't remember the specifics of this either, but they like, they, kind of set a different date saying, well, if you were this on this date, then you were considered full, which like totally reset this whole dial for who is what percent. And it's just such utter horseshit, you know, it just needs to be done away with altogether. It's a perfect example of that social construction. You know I mean? It really is like, Mm -hmm. oh, now you're not that race. Like, what do you mean? My biology didn't change. The woman in the seventies who moved from California to Louisiana and like California, it was like, if you were one quarter black, you were black, but in Louisiana, it's like one seventh, you know, they went further back and she's one fifth, you know? So her race goes from white to black when she's driving across the country in her car, you know, her race is changing. It's so silly, you know, to think about, but it matters. Those are not trying to make light of it. Like it matters. It it impacts your life, but in terms of biological construction, it's completely meaningless as you say. Okay. So what does this all tell us? Um, Okay, in the Red Rising interview, you discussed how much um, you hate the argument that people sometimes present to you, uh, that what happened to Indians is just one example of human empire building and exploitation that's always happened. You know, untold generations have had this done to them. Uh, in addition to wanting to punch them, <laughs> you essentially said, uh, you tried to kill us, but we're Which still guy here. In the- <laughs> you, you tried to kill us, but you're still here. So finish the job or deal with us as we start to rise. So what does that look like? You know, deal with us as we start to rise. And, uh, you know, what, what do you think the government's going to do? Are they going to try to finish the job or are they going to deal with you as they start to rise? And, and what would they need to do to effectively deal with you as you start to rise? 
for one thing, what I loved in, on that panel discussion is when I asked the guy how to react without punching him in the face, he said, well, I think you should go ahead and punch him in the <laughs> face. Go ahead and punch him. Yeah, that was a funny answer, too. Yeah. And you were like, well, um, I don't really want to do that. But that guy was pretty funny. You're right. That guy was like, yeah. Right, right. Um, so, well, you know, sovereignty is part of that, you know, right. and we're seeing that in the Line 3 protests in in – you know, in, in Minnesota right now, where where native activists are protesting this line three pipeline. I think pipelines is where you really see yeah. indigenous people flexing their their sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And you see how the current iteration of these colonial powers, which are still every bit as colonial as they've ever been, right. you see how they react. And now there's more awareness of it. So, you know, these white dudes can cosplay as army guys and, and stand on the steps of the cattle capital building, like in Michigan and nothing happens to them. Right. Or they have this uprising in DC, like we saw in January and very little happens to them. And we have these government officials like, like here in Montana that are like right behind that, that, that refuse to, to do anything to hold these people accountable. There's awareness of that. And meanwhile, that same government, you know, strafes, these protesters with helicopters, you know, that are protesting and you see where their loyalties are. Their, their loyalties are with, with capitalism and corporations and all these people, all these, these things that, that pay their, their way to, to finance their elections, you know? So there's awareness there. And I feel like, you know, a lot of this stuff, climate change, you know, wildfires last night was our first Valley full of smoke from wildfires for the year. And, and we're worried that this is what it's going to be like now till October, you know? And, and you see like, like in California last year, there was big talk of, you know, maybe the, maybe the indigenous people were onto something and how they managed forests to protect themselves from these big wildfires. So there's all this stuff kind of bubbling up from, from how things were always done here for thousands of years that more and more people I think are gaining an awareness of. And I don't know, you know, you and I won't see it. We're going to be dead, but, but, you know, hopefully, and that's what I talk, tell people at the little shell, you know, whatever good is going to come for our people from this federal recognition isn't going to benefit us. It's going to benefit two generations from now, you know, and and, that, and that's kind of the, one of those, you, you mentioned earlier about this, just this kind of amorphous native American Indian thing that everybody thinks like, like, Oh, I practice a native American spirituality, which one, because there were thousands of tribes, you know? Um, And, and, and there's views of, of how we look at time. And and there's the whole seven generations thing that, that, that was like a Iroquois Confederacy thing where, you know, we're going to make every decision based on how it's going to reflect seven generations from now. And there's another view of that. The one that I really like is, is yes, it's seven generations, but we're in the middle of it. So I need to, when I make a decision, I need to think about my ancestors going back two generations and my ancestors coming in two generations because I'm in the middle third one, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where I think, you know, these decisions where we're seeing how our government responds to like, pipeline protesters and all of these things that change will hopefully happen across not just the tribes, but people who care about the world, you know, that's the only way it can happen. And, and I think indigenous people are a large part of that bigger than in any other movement 
culturally in North America than we've ever been, at least visibly. I like that notion of being in the middle mm-hmm. of, of the seven, because I'd heard of the seven, but not in the, uh, in the middle. And I'm going to uh, pull up something. I have, it reminded me of a quote I use with my students in my social problems class, a Karl Marx quote. And he says, people make their own history, but that they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances given and transmitted from the past. So that your idea is like, okay, we got to recognize what happened before because it influences what we're doing now. Let me use what you said a second ago about the, as a segue into this next topic about land. Um, and I'm looking at your first book, the, um, the one sentence journal. And then I look at your newsletter and I know you're working on another book now about your tribe. The first book has a lot in there about the natural world, about, about nature. Uh, and not as much, say, like as a straight up Indian manifesto, you know. Um, so, you, you know, for example, you talk about finding nature in small places, the importance of walking in nature, interacting with animals and the likes. So it seems like nature plays a pretty large role in your life. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. So if that's true, how would you summarize like our relationship with the environment here in the U.S.? And, and if, is it, you think it's different for uh, different groups within the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, if I live in a bubble, it's that it's everybody that, I mean, you are in Montana. I mean, there are people who just cobble together livings just so they can stay here because they love the outdoors. And I think people who exist like in this bubble assume that everybody cares about that kind of thing. And, and you can go someplace else like uh, some urban environment where people don't really have any connection at all to the, and, and the, the thought of, you know, I just came off a three day, two night river trip workshop, you know, where we were all, you know, shitting in a communal plastic tub for three days, you know, (laughs) and there are people who think, good Lord, I would never do that. Or I would never, you know, roll up in a sleeping bag in the rain Mm -hmm. with no tent and just hope it's going to stop, you know, and we take for granted that not everybody likes that. I think a lot of us out here. So there is definitely a different view of the natural world for me than there is than, than someone who's never experienced it. And one of the, one of the challenges, you know, that I try and take on with my writing is recognizing that you don't, you know, there's nature popping up between the cracks and a sidewalk, you know, everywhere. And there are coyotes living in, in urban, you know, Chicago and, New York and and Los Angeles and all these places and foxes and you know the natural world doesn't give a fuck to us, to them our human constructions are just a new thing that they have to deal with and they adapt accordingly as best they can as they can yeah um, you know if if there was a mission that that I was on is to try and show people that the world is all around us the natural world we don't have to go to Glacier you know we don't have to go to Yellowstone to see the wilderness, you know, more of those places are so overrun. I, I don't even bother. Mm-hmm. You know, I go out to my old abandoned logging roads and walk and I see everything I need to see. I see it out my window, you know, with, with birds at the feeders. And, and I, I just wrote a thing for a couple places this past week about, you know, seeing a Cooper's Hawk, take a red winged blackbird right in the street or mm-hmm. a, or a Northern shrike, take a sparrow right out of the cherry tree. I mean, that's life and death shit. No different than a <laughs> cheetah running down a gazelle in, in right. Africa. So right. it's happening around us all the time. And for me to think that my activism or my services to the little shell, yeah, that's p- part of it. And I, 
like not even a week ago, I had this realization that I feel like, you know, like this writing is a kind of service and going out and talking to people is a kind of service. And I'm not a little shell member in service to little shell. I'm a little shell member in service to the world. And, and, and anything that I do and anything I say, as far as trying to, to recognize these parts of the world that I think get overlooked Yes, that's for my little shell people too, but it's for you. It's for everybody. Right. You know, if we don't all start to pay attention, we're fucked. Mm-hmm. You know, Martin Shaw says the same thing, talking from the UK. You know, it's like we are at in the 11th hour, you know, and, yeah. and that, that is the message I'm trying to, to, to give, to, to share, because what happened to us as little shell people you can juxtapose modern era over the things that were happening to us 150 years ago. And that shit is still happening. And the United States is still part of that shit happening. And if we don't wake up, it's, it's, it's just going to spiral till there's nothing. Right. And that sounds kind of hyperbolic, but, but I, I believe it's true. If we could tie it together, um, I'm thinking of capitalism, and I had emailed you something about this earlier. Um, if, if I try to find like a common thread, you know, in terms of say just native peoples, the role of capitalism, if there is an ethos, you know, continued consumption, exploitation of land, you know, and so Indians had farming land, uh, they don't know how to use it, better kick them off. Now they got mineral rights, uh, can't take, can't have that either, right? And then no. in terms of natural resources themselves, you know, just capitalism makes us into an, an exterminator species, really, you know, if it's anything is in the way of quote unquote progress. And so uh, I wrote a, one of my earlier blog posts was about this, um, you know, the way that capitalism makes it seem like you're either for the environment or you're for working people. Cause you know, if you save this animal, then these people don't have jobs, you know, this kind of stuff. So this, this, I think there's a strong in, interaction here. Uh, tell me, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but there seems to be a strong interaction between the capitalist narrative narrative and um, what happens to the natural environment and what's happened to indigenous peoples in the U.S. at least. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the history of of indigenous people in North America and and colonial powers has always been about resources, land you know, everything that you just mentioned, that's what it's always been about. We were here and we needed to be moved away so that these other people could have it. So, I mean, that, that is, I mean, you see it in Africa, you see it in in South America. That's what it's always been. We get sold this bill of goods about, we need to have this. I mean, does, does every, six year old and over really need a freaking smartphone. You know, we, we buy into this. Well, this is the future. This is how it is. I just saw this thing about this morning, uh, you know, a, a quote from Biden talking about how education needs to be expanded by two years because, you know, 12 years isn't enough for kids to compete in the modern world. Well, compete against what? Right. Burning the fucking world down, right. you know, because if, if is that the measuring stick that we're all striving for this relentless growth. Well, I, who wants to be part of that? Right. You right. know, if, if we could just set the brakes and, and, you know, and, and I know there was a lot of talk of coming out of COVID that 
things were going to be different. And, and yeah, I think there's a lot of, of evaluation going on as far as, you know, remote work and people not wanting to go into the office. But other than that, it seems like everybody's just raring to get back on planes and, and, and travel and do all this shit. And it's like, man, we, we uh, doesn't feel like we learned anything. Can we hit the brakes? I mean, is it, you know, can we locate more equity and empathy within capitalism and just tweak it? Or do we need to ditch it and, and find a different approach? I'm all for ditching it, you know, but, <laughs> but, it, but, you know, if we, I, I don't have the answer for what that looks like. I want someone smarter than me. <laughs> you know, let's start at least with the green new deal. Right. Uh-huh. And people say, Oh, that's too expensive. It's like, well, what's alternative? You know, so what is too expensive? We seem to come up with trillions of dollars to invade some country because four or five oil barons, you know, want want access to what's under their soil. Mm-hmm. So what's a couple trillion bucks to like change how we generate energy for starts? Yeah. You know, and and I, I'm not smart enough, but oh, I'll, yeah. I'll, you know. I'm this close to being able to grab a rifle and say, I'll march with you fuckers. Yeah. You right. know? Yeah. I, I think you, uh, that's why I'm asking you the tough questions. Cause you got, you got the answers, man. Uh, you know, I think there needs to be some kind of intersectional approach, but I don't know exactly what it looks like. You know, um, uh-uh. I think, um, you know, we talk about this a lot in sociology, race versus social class, you know, uh, identity politics versus working class whites, these kind of things. Uh, and women too, you know, the gender and sexuality, um, you know, how many native women are, you know, raped and killed each year. Like, I think there needs to be an approach that brings them all together, but I'm expecting you to have the answers here. So I'm talking to you. It's why you're the guest, man. Um, but you have okay. said, I, I can surmise that you don't have a lot of um, faith in white progressives. You've said something about them buying all these social justice books. They probably won't read. Um, and then about land acknowledgements, you know, that's just a box to check to say, Hey, I'm progressive. You know, um, is it a zero sum game? Like is the concern that they'll just won't do anything that's really going to make change because now they can sleep at night saying, I'm going to put this on my, you know, my email signature or something. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Like the concern is that is you're just kind of lulling yourself into thinking that you're really making a change, but you're not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things there. So, so land acknowledgements is, is one that I've kind of planted a flag and, and. Can you explain it real, can you explain it real quick? I should, I should probably step back just like for somebody who doesn't yeah, know so where land, land I never see them. I never see them here anywhere really in Florida. I just never have seen ones. So I know I've seen them in other people, uh, other parts of the country. So there might be people that really have no idea what, it, what it is. So land acknowledgement there's two ways that people do it. One, like, like, let's say you're at some event, like at a university or something in the beginning of the universe of the, of the event, they say, you know, we just want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional lands of here in Missoula, the Salish people. Um, and you see it all around the country or at least this part of the country, you know, um, the idea being that somehow you're being progressive in acknowledging the fact that where you are is land that was taken from somebody else. But all that says to me is like, you're saying, yeah, I'm on this piece of land that used to be yours. Now it's not. And we don't good night. aren't going to do anything about that. You know, it's like awesome. Right. Or you'll see people on Instagram, like on their, you know, hiking to some lake saying, 
oh, here I am, you know, in my perfect little Patagonia head to toe hiking outfit. I just want to acknowledge that I'm on Chief Mountain, which is the indigenous, you know, traditional land of the Blackfeet people and a sacred site and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know, there are these places that tribes were kicked off of that, that if they returned was on pain of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where, if you're standing on Chip, Chief Mountain, where are the Blackfeet? They're on a reservation, not that far, but, but you're like climbing all over their sacred. I mean, I, again, I'm just kind of pulling examples out of my ass. I gotcha. I gotcha. Email signatures. Like I, I am on the ancestral land of it. What the fuck does that even, and what are you doing? So if you really want to express some solidarity, you want to participate, what are you willing to give back to us? Okay. You want to acknowledge it, but what kind of reparation? And I'm not talking about money. That's where like land back comes back, comes into it. Give us our land back. <laughs> it's like, well, we can't give it all. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I'm on the board of this organ, and this just came up through Twitter because someone asked about it and it's kind of blown up, you know, from well, blow up for me. That's like 60 people. It's not like a thousand or 10,000 or a million, but I'm on the board of this organization called the big sky country national heritage area. I think it's BSCNHA, which is the most unwieldy acronym ever. And what it is, is a national heritage area is where you have these, you know, signboards and and restore old buildings and things that like are are historical spots within this particular part of the world. And in our case, it's up around like Great Falls, which is where we live, where we're based. And there are, there's this huge pushback from all of these white landowners saying it's you know it's the federal government taking our land and the national which it's it's all bullshit but to me the irony there is you know these white landowners on stolen land complaining about somebody infringing on what they view as their private property rights and you know this probably isn't the most politically correct thing to say as a board member but i don't give a fuck Mm-hmm. about their private property rights. You know, private property is one of those things in America that is like the unchallengeable deity that we all, you know, worship that and money. And it's like, you know, why should one person just because they figured out a way to, to grind every penny out of a few million people and now they have trillions of dollars, why should they be able to own huge tracts of land. I mean, not fuck them, you know, who cares how much money they have. I got, I got to admit that was a, that was kind of an awakening for me, um, a blind spot, you might say, you know, because I, I would have been that way too. Like, well, all right, realistically, you're not getting that land back. Those people got too much fucking money. They're not going to give that shit up. You know, that's, that's what I thought. But then when I was watching that interview, uh, David Korea, is that how you say his name? Yeah. He said something about like the, the colonial conquest and land relationships are seen as natural. And I think that's really true. Like, why can't we change it? It's just, you just assume that it's not going to happen because part of that narrative has always been, well, this is just how it's got to be. This is just how it is. And, and I don't think I was fully aware of the, just the assumptions that that was making that were so value laden, you know, in support of one group and in, you know, in, in, in sort of penalty to yeah. other groups. So that was kind of an eye opener for me. Do you consider yourself a, you know, a writer, uh, a, 
a storyteller, a poet, a historian, because I'm going to then ask you kind of like, what do you see as your role um, while you're doing this? You've told me as in kind of a service approach, but what do you, how do you define yourself in, in this, this whole big milieu here? So more and more, I just define myself as a storyteller. And sometimes I'm telling those stories through poetry. Sometimes I'm telling it through, you know, like, like, like the work in nonfiction I'm doing, the Little Shell book, book that I'm working on now, or magazine articles. Um, sometimes I'm literally telling stories, walking onto a stage and telling a story in front of a room full of people. Uh, the, the presentations I do about the Métis and the Little Shell tribe and all these things is all a form of storytelling. So that, you know, that's, that's how I define myself as, as a storyteller. I don't define myself as a historian even with your current work? No, I mean, I mean, I start out saying I'm not a historian. I don't have an academic bone in my body because I think the term historian kind of allies yourself with, with the kind of uh, colonialist. Sure. Most of the people who define what we think of as history were white dudes up until like World War II, you know, when, when some working class people, you know, joined the military and came back with a GI bill and were able to go to college and we, and, and some of that education was taken out of the hands of the elites. You know, we're living in kind of the reverberations and the concentric rings from these elite people who got to decide what was true. And I mean, look at the critical, critical race theory that's being talked about now, you know, there's a lot of elites and a lot of people who were educated by elites pushing back against that. Uh uh And, um, I'm quick to say, I, I don't, what you say is history was, was, was identified by somebody 60 years ago. And I'm talking to a elder who was told by their father, who was told by their mother, who was told by their mother. And we're going back some generations and no, I don't have anything to prove this from other than the words out of this guy's mouth. But I believe the words out of this guy's mouth more than I believe you're Mm-hmm. dissertation or yeah. whatever. Right. And yes, there are things that we would not be federally recognized if not for the work by some very important non-indigenous historians who dug up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I started to interview people for this blog. This blog's only about a year and a half old, but I started mm-hmm. to interview people um, that I viewed as artists Um, because I came across a Joni Mitchell quote and she said, when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm, it's time for artists to make their mark. That question I'm posing to you, I think works if you did consider yourself as an artist, which I say as a writer or a poet, but also as a storyteller, because the art, uh, the quote I also like to use is by um, George Gerbner. He's a late communication scholar. And he said, the telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human behavior. If that's true, what do you, what do your stories aim to tell? If you're trying, if your stories, cause you said once I'm just a storyteller, but according to George Gerbner, there's maybe no more important thing to be than a storyteller. So what do you, what do yeah. you do with that? What do you do with that power? Well, I, I think it speaking truth to power is the power, you know? So they're all, you know, this, it's really a small part of the population who works against the rest of us. You know, it's the whole 1% thing. And and as artists, you know, I feel like it is our responsibility to reflect the truth of what these people are trying to impose on us back to them in a way that everybody else can see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I'm telling the story of the little shell and how we were involved and how we've been eliminated from the conversation 
that is a reflection of truth back to the powers who would still prefer that we are seen or not seen, okay. you know, that we remain invisible. And that, that is for indigenous people. I mean, there are people, you know, on the East coast that, that to this day, and Troyer writes about that in his book, heartbeat of wounded knee. You know, you talked about David Troyer in his Atlantic article, you know, he, he wrote that book, which was a finalist for the national book award just to kind of say, no, we are still here. And we are, these are all the things that we're still doing. Yeah. And, and I feel like I'm part of that storytelling tradition to say, yeah, we're still here. And, you know, my people are as much, you know, the working class people as they are Indian people, you know, like Willie Vlotten. I know you talked to him, his yeah. storytelling is kind of about the, the, the working class kind of downtrodden folks. And that's what I love so much about it. You the know, people about, on the margins. Yeah. Yes. Like, and yeah. He, he talked about, uh, uh, I can't remember if it was a reading or if this was a conversation I had with him um, about not reading his book reviews, but when they made the movie for the motel life, he went on and looked at some reviews of it. And, and of course went straight to the one star review and, and the person was saying, you know, why do I care about these people? They're just a bunch of losers. And he was like, well, that, those are my people. And those are my people too, you know, and, and those are the people that I want to reflect the truth of our being here and what it's like to, to live the way we do back at the powers that be in a way that everybody else can see it too. Because, you know, like we were talking about land back and are we ever little shell going to get all that land on the Northern Plains back? No, but by reflecting back so that everybody can hear it, how all these terrible things that have been done, maybe we can fix some other things, you know, chip away at some of these things that seemed unattainable. And there are plenty of examples to, in, in the world to see that that's been successful, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's women being allowed to vote, you know, abortion is constantly under pressure and we continue to hold the line on that. And we have to hold the line. And the only way that we do that. I think it's, it's through storytelling and art and storytelling doesn't mean a novel. It means someone just standing up in a room and saying, this is what happened to me. That's, that's storytelling. Man, that's a killer way to killer way to do it. Like that puts a lot of responsibility on the artist, you know, <laughs> and there yeah, should be, this, yeah. this isn't fucking around. Mm -hmm. There yeah. should be. And if you're someone who's like, Oh, I don't want to talk about politics on my Twitter feed. Cause I don't want to alienate any of my readers. Right. You are, you know, Charles Bowden says it's easy to make money telling the powerful what they want to hear. I mean, that might not be exact, yeah, but, but th that's the gist of this quote. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. But you know, if you are a good writer, if you're a good musician, if you're a good storyteller, you're betraying a gift. If you use it only for filthy lucre, you know, mm -hmm. gifts should be shared and, and gifts should be used for the greater good. And while, you know, I love a blow them up, you know, popcorn summer movie as much as anybody, but this whole idea, you, you are selling out to, to the lowest common denominator. If all you care about is, is whether or not your readers are going to like you enough to buy your shit because you have an opinion on something mm -hmm. uh, to me, I, I, that that's the height of, of privilege, you know, I don't know. I, I get worked up about that. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Not having to, to address things 
that other people daily have to have, you know, I hear sometimes mm-hmm. with students, you know, I get to the, sh- the chapter on politics and the economy and it splits the class in half. Some students eat that shit up and they pay attention all the time. Other students are like, I don't really like to talk about politics. And it's typically people who don't have day-to-day realities where politics influences their life, you know, yeah. white or upper class or some other means of, of kind of privilege where they don't really have to be involved in politics because, their daily, you know, their daily life and happiness isn't really at stake, you know, and other people have yeah. no choice but to get involved in politics. Right. Suddenly my internet is staying, it's unstable. Okay, yeah, I saw that. I kind of lost you for a second. All right. Well, that might be a good spot to end it then if we're if the universe is telling us. Yeah, my, we've my talked computer's tomorrow. tired of hearing me talk. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Chris. Uh-huh. I appreciate it. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you and I'll, I'll definitely will stay in touch. Sure, yeah. sure. Talk to you again soon, hopefully. Yep. See you later. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Chris Latre on our social landscape, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I thank Chris for taking the time to engage in a fun and friendly chat. I didn't know much about his work until my friend R.T. White sent me Chris's first book, One Sentence Journal, and I loved it, so I quickly consumed everything I could that he'd written. A shout out, therefore, to R.T. for bringing Chris to my attention. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology. For me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world, but it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password, then you can comment after each post. At the very least, feel free to email me your comments and I'll be sure to respond. I'll post a link to Chris's work on my page, and if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Thanks for listening. They say we'll kill them off, take their land, and go there for vacation. My people's culture was strong and was growing, if not for that white green, they would have endured. My people were left with no choice but to decide to conform to a system. Their minds enslaved, their souls encaged, I feel the rage, brutality can never be undone. But the sun is not yet set, the beats and drums and microphones are threatened. Genocide. Genocide.